Um, anyways, here's what we're going to do now. We are going to study in the book of Revelation as we've been going through this. So if you guys not, would not mind grabbing your Bibles, opening up to Revelation chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we have them in the back. If you don't own a Bible, take a Bible, use it today, and then keep it. It's yours. I want you to have it. So, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. We started this series a few weeks ago. And uh, we are kind of now moving into kind of a second section in the book, which, which is a very unique section throughout the entire book. It's more of a teaching. We might call it didactic. It has to do with Jesus writing seven letters to seven churches that he's going to give them commendation. He's going to commend them for certain things they're doing right. He's also going to rebuke them for certain things some of them are doing wrong. But it's nonetheless a letter from Jesus himself to them uh, but it was also a letter that was going to be uh, resent. In other words, they got it, this church would read it, they'd gather either in a house or in a hall or a public meeting room, they'd all sit down and read it and say, this is a letter from uh, Jesus who God used John to write, let's read it, let's take to heart the things that we need to do, pray through these things, and then they would basically repackage it and give it to a messenger and send it to another church down the road. And they would do the same thing. So in other words, 2,000 years have gone by. And so here we are today, sitting down, reading the very same letters that Jesus wrote through the Apostle John that were delivered to the various churches, and then re-gifted. And we have this amazing privilege and honor to be able to read this same letter today that Jesus wrote. And hopefully it will impact our hearts in the same way that it would have impacted the Ephesian people that had read it. So I'm going to pray first before we even jump in. And then I'm going to read the passage, the whole letter that Jesus wrote to each, or to this particular church that we'll be looking at today. It's a church in a city called Ephesus. And then we'll get to work taking a look at it. So let's start by praying, ask God to speak to us here today. Father, we ask you right now that you would just open our eyes, give us ears to hear. Lord, help us to be able to have humble hearts that's capable of receiving from you. We need you, Jesus, to just speak to us. And um, God, most of all, more importantly than anything, that we would be as a church that you want us to look like, to be like, that's reflective of you, that looks like you. And God, we confess that oftentimes the way that we look we think is okay, we think is correct, we think is the proper way. And we confess that, Lord, that a lot of times we just don't assess ourselves accurately. We need somebody else outside of us speaking into us to tell us really what's up. And Jesus, we thank you that you do that, and yet you do it in a way that's full of truth as well as full of light and love. And so we just give you this time right now and just allow your work to be done in our hearts. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 2 verse 1 says this to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. How you cannot bear those who are evil. How you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and how you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works that you did. If not, I will come to you, and I will remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet, this I have 
that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He was an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So John writes this letter as dictated by Jesus, packages it, sends it off to this church in the city called Ephesus. I want to take you guys to Ephesus. I want to give you a little bit of a background of this amazing city. So the next slide is going to give us a little bit of a geographical picture of what this is. And I want you guys to be familiar with it. So I'm going to walk over here and show you some stuff. If I had a laser pointer, I would use it. But I would also be tempted to shine in your eyes. So I'm not. So here's what we're going to do. I want to take you guys on a little bit of a journey. This is a map of the ancient world. I want to start off by pointing you guys to Jerusalem. Here's Jerusalem. This is where it all began. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, Jesus dies in Jerusalem, he resurrects again from Jerusalem, and what happens is the church is birthed here, but the church begins to grow, and it expands kind of in this region, uh, Judea, Samaria, and the innermost parts of the world, and it began to make its way northward to a city called uh, Antioch, which is a large Gentile city, and from Antioch, Paul the Apostle, a guy named Barnabas, uh, several other people, they would hop on a boat, and they would basically make their way, they would have, the first place they would have gone was after Antioch was Cy- Cyprus, and then from there they would have made their way up into this particular region right around here and they would have traveled up in this area this whole area right here these these mountain ranges these high areas right here called the Tarsus Mountains this would have been somewhere on the area where Paul the Apostle was originally from this whole region right here is a region called Galatia Galatia it is the place where the uh, letter to the Galatians was written Um, and then after that Paul would have traveled he would have traveled all the way over here to this region Uh, all these islands over here, ancient Greece, um, through the Aegean Sea. That's where Paul would have gone. Um, And then Paul would have planted several churches. Paul definitely planted this church in this city called Ephesus. We'll learn about this city in a second here. Um, It's also the area where John, uh, on the island of Patmos, that's Patmos right there. And so that's where John would have been writing this letter from. That's where John would have received the revelation of Jesus from Patmos. And then he would have sent it to this first church, Ephesus, what I want you to notice here is something sort of of a postal route. Um, in the ancient world, one of the benefits of the ancient Roman Empire is they were masters at building. All right? I mean, we still look at some of the Roman architecture today, but one of the main things that Rome was, was well known for was the, uh, was the road system in which they, had, they built. And so they would build these massive road structures. And uh, so if you look at this, uh, if you read chapter 2 and then chapter 3, you'll notice there's sort of a progression by which the churches go. So what do you think the next church, obviously you can read it, but the next church in which Jesus writes to after Ephesus is Smyrna. After Smyrna, Pergamum, and then Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and then Laodicea. Laodicea. And what you notice with regard to that is it's sort of in a circular type of a fashion. Why? Probably because sort of that's the postal route. You can imagine it would be a bummer for the guy that John gives it to. And he goes from Ephesus to Sardis to Laodicea to Pergamum. That would be a bummer. And so he writes it to each of these churches kind of in a progression as it follows sort of a postal route. And that's how they probably would have been delivered to. But what I want you to notice with regard to that area is Ephesus is actually located right on the sea. It's a seacoast city. It was one of the most beautiful cities in the ancient uh, known world. And uh, the next slide, what I want to kind of walk you through a little bit is some of the, uh, the actual aspects with regard to the city of Ephesus itself. Um, you can learn a lot about the uh, history of Ephesus. In fact, there's more written about the city of Ephesus than really any other New Testament city. 
Um, there's a letter that's written to it from the Apostle Paul. It was started by Paul. Paul later on, as he uh, would have left Ephesus, he was there for approximately three years after he left. He handed the church over to a really good friend of his, a protege, uh, Padawan, uh, a guy named Timothy. Timothy ends up taking over. You like that, Star Wars? Uh, he takes over the church, and then after Timothy, uh, John the beloved apostle ends up becoming the pastor of that church. This is an amazing church in really an amazing city. But Ephesus was very well known in the ancient world for several things. One of the things that you'll notice here on your right, or I'm sorry, on your left, is you see this structure. Anybody want to take a guess as to what you think that structure is? Anybody take a guess? Somebody said it back there? Sorry, temple. Really good guess, but no. Anybody else? What? Library. This guy's got it right. Good job. Thank you. It's correct. That's a library. In fact, it's the largest library in the entire ancient known world outside of uh, Alexandria, Egypt. All right? Largest library. Um, The other thing that you'll notice over here, you'll see um, the, the city also had an amphitheater. It had a theater and also had a hippodrome. A hippodrome, the word hippo is the Greek word for horse. Uh, So a hippodrome was where they would race horses. It was the ancient version of my least favorite sport, NASCAR. And it was basically a way in which they would just enjoy themselves past time. So what you learn about the city so far was it was a major educational center. It was a major arts center. It was a major sports center. Okay. Uh, some of the other things that we also noticed about the city is, uh, you're probably wondering what the statue is in the middle. Does anybody want to take a guess as to what you think the statue is? Anybody? You said it? Diana, yes, Diana or Artemis, however you want to look at it. Yes, it's an ancient statue of Diana, Artemis, uh, depending upon which uh, name which you want to give to it. Some of you are like, what's that all over uh, the center? You're right. That's exactly what that is. Diana is a multi-breasted goddess. The reason why is because she was the goddess of fertility. And the way that they would have viewed her is uh, you pray to Diana, you have good relations with Diana, and you become fertile. Your ground becomes fertile. Your commerce becomes fertile. You get wealthy. And that's the way the city of Ephesus would have been known. In fact, in the ancient world, if you were to talk about the city of Ephesus, the main thing which Ephesus was known for was the worship of the goddess Diana. It was one of the major pagan temples for Diana. In fact, according to ancient uh, tra- tradition and, and uh, archaeology, they've uncovered or they've discovered that the, there probably would have been a 425-foot statue of Diana over the city. Now, I want you to think about this. 425 feet. This is massive. Uh, it would have been covered in gold or gold-plated. And it was basically said that this massive statue over the city would have towered over the city. And so if you would come from the coast or come from the land, uh, you would see the statue from miles and miles away as it would sort of just kind of glisten in the sun and give out light. Um, Back in the day of the first century, uh, Ephesus was actually a coastal city. If you go there today to where the ruins are at, uh, the ocean's about four miles away. That's because of silting and all sorts of other things. But back in the day, uh, there was a port. So most people would have uh, approached it either by port or by land, certain trade routes. But it was a very, very significant, very important city in that ancient world. One of the last things you need to know about the city was it was the main city that was devoted to the emperor worship. 
at the time of John's writing, a guy by the name of Domitian. Okay? Domitian was one of the very first Roman emperors that decided to institute, uh, to initiate himself as being one of the gods and was to be worshipped as one of the gods. And not just a god among the pantheon of uh, uh, Roman and Greek gods and goddesses, but he was the god of gods or the king of kings or the lord of lords. In fact, they've uh, discovered a very large field in the region of modern-day Ephesus, which doesn't exist today, they're in ruins. And on this particular field, they, they, they know that there was a large structure that was built up there. In fact, they've discovered some of the ruins there where there would have been these statues built up, these columns, massive columns. And on these columns, there would have been carved in each of the gods of the Romans and of the Greeks. And on top of this structure would have been a very flat structure and then the temple. And the temple would have been devoted to the goddesses or the gods of the, of the day, but there was a massive 25-foot statue of Domitian, all right? Massive statue of Domitian, uh, and they've discovered this. They've actually found the head of it. I mean, it's a massive, massive head. The arm is just unbelievably huge. And, and so the idea was Domitian is literally being held up by all these gods and goddesses. It was the main site of emperor worship in the entire ancient known world. So Ephesus is very significant in the Bible. And what we begin to find out, especially in the story of the book of Acts, chapter 19, I would encourage you guys at some point this week, read two things for me. One, read Acts chapter 19. It'll give you a great background as to how this amazing church got started. But then also read the book of Ephesians. It's a very short book. It's not very long. It probably should not take you longer than 25, 30 minutes of just straight reading and you'll be done with it. But what I want you to see with regard to this is this church in Ephesus was started. This actual community of Jesus' people began by one little guy, by the name of Paul the Apostle. Acts chapter 19 tells us a story. He walks into the city. Paul would have been struck immediately by this massive temple uh, devoted to Diana. And he would have been struck by, you know, all they had these priests that would serve Diana uh, they were called eunuchs. Yes, they had stuff taken away from their body in order to qualify them to be priests of Diana. And that's how they devoted themselves. They demonstrated their devotion to the goddess Diana by cutting stuff off. And so Paul would have walked into the city and would have immediately been struck by this massive 425-foot structure glowing in the sun. And he would have immediately been struck by the reality that this is the center of worship uh, for different leaders, although when Paul went to it, Domitian was not the leader. But what Paul begins to realize is that he goes, there, there's, a, there's a community of Jews there in that city. So Paul goes to the synagogue, and there in the synagogue, Paul opens to them the gospel. Paul preaches to them for several weeks about Christ, about Jesus, until Paul, in essence, gets kicked out of the synagogue, and then he starts meeting in this little hall. It's called the Hall of Tyrannus. And there Paul was for several years, just preaching the gospel to whoever would come out. And literally what we're told is that in the region of Ephesus, the whole city was being moved by the gospel that this foreigner guy, Paul the Apostle, ends up bringing to them. In fact, so much so, what you need to know with regard to the connection with Diana, because here's this, the city that's literally built upon, commercially, upon Diana, all right? Imagine a 425-foot statue of Diana, people worshiping Diana. They're coming there from all around the world. She's the matron god of the city. Everybody comes from all around the world to, to worship Diana. 
what was going on also during that time is that they were donating large sums of money to the temple so the temple can be built. It's one of the ancient wonders, uh, seven ancient wonders of the ancient world. Massive structure. And all this money was going to the temple. They began to realize, you know, we, could, we can kind of start a banking system. In fact, in the ancient world, it was a banking system, a banking city. So not only was it a college town, university, but it was also a cultural center. It was also a sports arena. It was a place that was devoted... Uh, most passionately to the emperor, and it was also devoted to this pagan deity, Diana. And it was very, very commercially, commercially wealthy. There was a lot of money in the city of Ephesus. So as Paul's preaching the gospel, and as the gospel's going out, people are being changed by the word of God. In fact, there comes this day where everybody brings other goods, and they burn them. It's just this massive bonfire they get rid of all their pagan stuff and paraphernalia, and they worship God, worship Christ. Paul ends up getting in trouble, and uh, they used to have these processions going through the town where they would worship these pagan gods. People would all get naked and sing songs, and they'd worship these false deities. And so here's Paul preaching Jesus, and for two hours straight, we're told in Acts 19, the whole city shouts at the top of their lungs, great is Diana, great is Diana. And here's this little Jewish dude, all right, who's just got the boldness of this massive lion, right, or a liger, and he just, he loves Jesus, and he's full of just God's strength, and he's proclaiming the gospel. Love this. I mean, think about this. This was, this was not just some random, unknown, this was Paul the apostle, and, and Paul started this church in this phenomenal city, and the church grew. It was a healthy church. You read through the book of Ephesians. You realize this was a church that got it. I mean, these people understood some really deep spiritual truths about God. They really got it. But here's what happens. Years go by. Years go by. Probably by this time, uh, Paul would have started this church maybe 45 A.D., 50 A.D., and if this letter was written around 90 AD, you do the math, you figure it out, time goes by, time lapses, and what happens is you've got a church that sort of moves forward ahead in the future, and even though this church started out strong and sound and doctrinally uh, sufficient and healthy, and they had a lot of good social activity going on and stuff like that, helping the poor, taking care of widows, so on and so forth, somewhere along the line, this church sort of started tapering off. And here's this letter that Jesus sends to this church. So with that, I wanted to give you guys a little bit of a background. Hopefully you can wake up now. And we're going to talk about why this church is so significant. And why some of the things that Jesus said to this church really matter. And ways in which this church can really get things straightened out. So the first thing that we notice in verse 1, it says this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The very first thing that we notice straight out is that Jesus is holding these lights in his hand and they are representative probably of the messengers. That could either be an angel, some people might think, or a pastors, the leadership of the church. Uh, but then also it's significant, Jesus says, I'm walking amongst the seven lampstands, among the churches. The point that I made last week is Jesus is very, very interconnected with this church. I know it's popular today to make fun of the church, to laugh at it, to poke it, to look at it, to run away from it, to write blogs, books, everything about it. Yeah, I know the church is messed up. I know. 
we're all part of it, we're all messed up. But the reality is, is that this church, this gathering, this group of people that have been called out from sinful activities in this world to be Jesus' bride, he loves. He loves his church. He loves his church. I want you to think about that. I want you to consider that. Because yes, it's easy to look at the flaws within the church and realize some things may be, might be outdated. Church, in a lot of ways, is not very culturally relevant. Yada, yada, yada. I understand it. But the point that I want to make is this. Jesus loves his church. He loves his church. And here he is depicted as not only holding the leadership in his hand or these messengers to the church in his hand, but he's also depicted as walking among the churches. He's very uh, intricately related and connected to the church. And what we're going to see the next thing is, uh, slide's already up there, is we see that Jesus is going to, in essence, begin to give some commendation or words of commendation to the church. Uh, what he does here in this particular church, in this letter, he, I basically would see that there's four areas in which Jesus commends this church of, in Ephesus for. Four things that he recognizes about them, four things that they're doing that he says, you guys are doing a great job. Uh, but here's the four things that he's going to say, and then he's going to kind of give the one area that he has a problem with. So the first thing he commends them for is their works. In verse 2, uh, he says this, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. The Greek that's used there is ergon and kopos for works and toil. Ergon and kopos, meaning you are working. You've got good works, good actions, good things you're doing. You're helping one another. You're doing kind things. You are a working, active type of a group of people. And the concept behind toil is the idea of you're sweating while you're doing it. You're working hard. It's, you're diligent with regard to it. So he commends them for your works. You've got a lot of activity going on. A lot of good things happening. All right? Uh, the second thing he points out, he says, I also commend you for your very low tolerance of evildoers. Verse 2 again, he says, you cannot bear with those who are evil. You cannot bear with those. The word cannot bear comes from sort of two words in the Greek that basically mean you won't carry. You refuse to carry. So in other words, heretic shows up at the door, you know, says, I'm here to preach. You're like, sorry, go to the church down the street. You don't let them in. You won't carry them. They're like, can I at least have a bed to lay on? They're like, nope. Can I have some food? Nope. Cup of soup? Nope. We don't carry you. Jesus is like, I commend you for that. You don't commend, or you don't help, you don't carry, you don't enable evildoers. The word evildoer is kind of an interesting word that's used there. Kekos is the actual Greek word. It appears in the in its, in its specific form here in actually two New Testament uh, passages. One in Philippians, uh, Paul, the apostle, is writing this, and he's talking about this group of people. He calls them the mutilators of the flesh. Kind of a fancy word. Think about that. You're like, what's your ministry? I'm the mutilator of the flesh. You know? And, and these are people that would go around. And what was happening is Paul would go to these churches and he'd preach the gospel. And as soon as Paul would leave, these people would come in after the Bible study when Paul's gone. And they're like, hey, Paul gave a great Bible study. That was wonderful. Uh, most of what Paul said was just awesome. But there's one little area that Paul forgot to tell you is all you Gentiles, we're going to have like a circumcision session right now. Like, what's that? Drop your pants, we'll show you. And they're like, we're going to circumcise you. Because if you really want to be right with God, y'all got to be circumcised. You got to be like Jewish people. And that's literally what was going on. So Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, listen, 
There's this group of people, they're like mutilators. They're mutilating their flesh. They're cutting their flesh. They're cutting, literally cutting the flesh of other people. And they're saying by doing this, they're actually justifying their relationship with God. Or they're making themselves right with God. And Paul uses a statement, a really strong statement. And Paul says, listen, I hope that while these guys are mutilating or circumcising or cutting other people's flesh, these evildoers will slip and cut themselves off. Pretty profound. And you're like, Paul the Apostle said that? Like, yeah. Yeah, Paul was serious about this. He calls these guys evildoers. These people are evildoers. So in Paul's mind, the way that this word comes across here, an evildoer in this particular context is somebody that adds something to the gospel. That's an evildoer. Somebody that adds extra steps. These are people that come along and are like, you know what? If you love Jesus, that's great. If you go to church... That's wonderful. If you trust Christ for your salvation, that's really great. But the reality is, real Christians homeschool their kids. Real Christians use King James Version Bible. Real Christians believe this particular type of eschatology. And if you don't believe this particular eschatology, you don't have this particular Bible. And if you don't homeschool just like us, it's unfortunate, but you're not a real Christian. Right? And this is kind of the idea that Paul was, types of stuff that Paul was dealing with. And he says, that's evil. It's evil, it's doing evil to add stuff to one's list of salvation outside of trusting in Christ alone. The other one in which this appears is in Matthew chapter 21, verse 41. Uh, Jesus is talking, he's giving this little parable, and he says um, this group of people that were entrusted with a garden, and uh, that the master sends a servant uh, out to the garden to come gather the goods and they end up um, stoning the servants and pushing them out of the garden. And then the master says, you know, maybe if I send my son, they'll accept the son. And what happens is the son comes and they're taken out and they end up killing the son. It's obviously reminiscent of what Jesus does. And then he goes on and he points out, he says, those who reject the son basically are kekos, evildoers. These are evildoers, people who reject the son. They do evil. All right, so if you just look at it this way, people who do evil the church of ephesus says no not here this is not this is not what we do we have very strong sturdy walls built around our church we don't do evil we do good works the third thing that he points out in terms of which he commends them for is their orthodoxy and their discernment chapter 2 uh, verse 2 again he says they've tested those who call themselves apostles and they're not and they found them to be false Later on down in verse 6, he says, you guys also hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which things I also hate. So what you see here with regard to this church is this group, this group of people were able to identify false prophets, people who claimed to be leaders that were sent out from Christ, sent out from God, but they're really not. He says, I know that you're not really following Christ, you're not living according to God's word, therefore we're not going to let you come preach in our church. Um, and he says, you guys also hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, there's a lot of speculation over what the Nicolaitans are and who they are and what the deeds of the Nicolaitans or the works of the Nicolaitans are. Um, I'm not going to go into all that. One of the examples that may be the most plausible is this. At least it was part of the early church tradition. So take it for what you want. Is they actually believe that... Uh, remember in the book of Acts when they were having some difficulty as they were growing as a church... There were all these uh, old ladies that were Greek. They weren't getting their portion of food in the morning, right? They're going out, like they want to get their food, but they're not getting their proper portion of food. The Jewish women, 
are getting like bigger heaps of you know, rice on their plate and the Greek women aren't getting as big a portion. And like, what's up? We need help. And so the early church says, okay, we'll raise up people to help allocate the food in a proper way. One of the guys out of the seven men that were called upon to take care of this Grecian widow problem was a guy by the name of Nicholas. And uh, so the early church tradition went something like this. This guy, Nicholas, uh, basically grew and he felt like there were areas in which he deserved more and uh, started forming this doctrine where he kind of became this guy that established sort of a following around himself. It was kind of like a cult type of a church scenario where people were following him. It was about Nicholas. He was the man. He was the dude that people followed. And uh, it was sort of this hierarchical type of a scenario. And so that's the way early church tradition would have understood this. And so Jesus says, I'm glad the fact that you guys have resisted this activity of the Nicolaitans. I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now think about that. We oftentimes think about Jesus as like meek, gentle, kind, loving Jesus who like picks up lambs and carries them on his shoulders and like avoids stepping on bugs. Just like meek, gentle Jesus. And here's Jesus like, right on. You hate those guys. I hate them too. Way to go, right? He's like, I commend you for that. I hate those dudes. And that's Jesus. He hates it when people live out whatever the deeds of the Nicolaitans were. But the point I would make of this is that these people were very orthodox. They were very discerning. When false doctrine came in, when false teaching was, was trying to push its way in, they were able to identify it and to push back. They didn't just absorb it. They were able to understand false concepts. What I find really fascinating to me about this as I study this, as you look at Acts chapter 19, as you read the book of Ephesians, what I find absolutely fascinating about this is that this was the center of cult worship. You never find a message anywhere in the New Testament of Paul preaching anti-Diana propaganda. Nowhere. But what you do find is Paul preaching the gospel. I find this really interesting to me, to be really honest with you. Because of the fact, in our modern day, especially in which technology has taken over and information is everywhere, there's sort of this new breed of ministry that sort of prides itself in trying to be kind of the watchdog or watchman-type ministry. And their job, as they view it in, for themselves in the body, is to go out and to attack everybody else that they disagree with. But what honestly I find in the Bible, in Paul preaching to a city that's filled with pagan idolatry, and Jesus writing to this group of people that are very commended, very much so commended for their orthodoxy, nowhere do we hear anything about these guys setting up anti-ministry, anti-anything propaganda. It's just preach the gospel. Here's what I want to say about this, is the gospel has the sufficiency to protect us, to keep us safe. Love for the gospel, love for the truth, allows us to be able to identify counterfeits, meaning we don't need to necessarily go out and to exclusively attack everything that we just don't agree with or just don't simply like. In fact, I just don't even know if it's very biblical, to be really frank with you. It doesn't emanate gospel truth. And here's Paul preaching Christ through the gospel, and it has his ability to protect them to the point where Jesus says, good job. You guys are doing a phenomenal job in a city 
full of paganism, full of idolatry. Why? Because they, they were holding to the gospel. And they were able to identify false people. Now, there's a good side to this and there's a bad side to this, which we'll look at in a moment here. The last thing that Jesus commends them for is their endurance and their strength. He says, I know that you are enduring patiently and you're bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. So he commends them for the fact that even though uh, persecution probably was getting heightened, especially in the fact that this was a, a center for Domitian worship, you can imagine this group of people were finding themselves in deep struggles and hardship. Pastors being hauled away, maybe your mom and dad being taken away, and they, they found themselves still persisting, still pursuing, and still pushing forward the gospel in that particular city. They had great endurance and strength. So, what is it that Jesus had against them? That's what we're going to take a look at right now. In verse 4, he says this, I have this against you. He says that you have abandoned your first love that you had at first. You've abandoned your first love that you had at first. Now here's what he's trying to communicate, I believe. First of all, in the text, there's a lot of uh, discussion as to what's he talking about. Is he talking about they've fallen away from loving God or they've fallen away from loving each other? Um, I think it could be probably both. I don't think that one needs to necessarily be pegged against the other. But here's what I think. This is my personal observation and perspective of it, and I'll tell you why. Uh, that being said, what I want you to do is not just simply take my word for it, search the scriptures, study them, let them have the final say. If I say something that's a little bit out of whack, pull me aside. I'll be humble enough to hopefully just respond to it and deal with it. Let the Bible be the center of everything that we do. We believe the Bible, we teach the Bible, we recognize it as a final authority. So it's just not my opinions. But take what I have to say and just check it out. But what I think that he's referring to, the love that they've abandoned, or the love that they've sort of waned away from or moved away from, is love for one another. One of the reasons why, is, I think, or the hint is found in the text itself. All of the verbs that are used in the actual Greek are personalized. They're, they're to individual people in the church. He's saying, you, you guys, you individual people, you know who I'm writing to. Jesus is basically writing as a, as a whole to the church, but then he individualizes it to each individual person in that congregation or in that church, and he says, you guys are doing a great job. You're holding strong in doctrine. You're standing strong in the midst of hardships, and you're not becoming weary. You're rejecting false teachers and nut jobs and wing nuts and all sorts of heretics. You're doing a great job at all that. But what I have against you is you guys have abandoned your love. You've abandoned your love. John chapter, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, Jesus predicts a day. He says, and because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. Matthew 24, verse 12 says, is that one day, people's love will begin to grow cold. John, the author of the book of Revelation, also wrote a handful of other small books, postcards, whatever. John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 says this, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This is a question. His whole point is that, like, look, if you go to church and you see somebody hurting, you see somebody struggling, you're brought, it's brought to your attention that somebody has a need, and you sort of turn your mind another way, or you tune 
off, or you realize somebody maybe needs forgiveness from you, and you're unwilling to grant that forgiveness, and you have this hardened heart, his whole point is, how does God's love, how is it being manifest in you? How is it coming out through you? How is it being shown through you? He finishes this little section here. He says, little children. John always spoke to his congregation just these unbelievably loving tones, overtures. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I mean, at the core of who we are, this resonates with us, doesn't it? I mean, it really does. I mean, all of us want to be loved in deed and truth, right? I mean, if you're married, for sure you know what I'm talking about. You definitely don't want your husband coming home, bringing flowers, throwing them on the table, and be like, what's up, I'm home, where's food? All right, oh, here's some flowers on the table. She's like, uh, and those are for what? She says, I hope I have a good meal tonight. You know, it's like love and word, not just word, but indeed and truth. And we resonate with that because that's how we want to be loved, right? We want to be loved indeed and in truth, not just in word. When people just pay us lip service, when people come up to us and just say things to us, just so that kind of hopefully try to make us feel a little bit better, we see through that. You guys, the world, I mean, it doesn't take a genius to see through somebody talking like a salesman. You know I'm talking about? We see through that. It's just plastic. It's a facade. It's fake. It's worthless. And the reality is, is that oftentimes... That's the way that we can become within the church, is that we can sort of have our own little lingo, our own little things in which we say stuff, our own little language by which we talk about God to other people. But at the end of the day, the real question is, are we actually loving each other? Do we actually love one another? Do we serve one another? Do we care for one another? This was the issue that was going on in the church of Ephesus. Years had transpired. They became very strong and astute in their doctrinal theology and their ideas about God. But somewhere along the line, this love waned. Somewhere along the line, this love just sort of passed out of sight. It just went out unnoticed. And they became sort of a group that was identified and known for all of their doctrinal concepts in which they, they held to strongly. And Jesus says, listen, you guys are doing a great job in that you're fighting off the bad crazies. But what I don't like, what I'm reprimanding you for is you guys have become a loveless type of a church. Now in America, because we're about 250 years old plus as a nation, we've seen series of revivals and movements within our country in which the gospel has come through. All right, we've seen this. And one of the interesting things that oftentimes always happens in every type of religious revival or renewal or types of things like that that happen is this waning it wanes where what starts off as this move of the spirit people are being saved people come to know christ they love jesus their lives are transformed sometimes even communities are transformed marriages are changed families are, are changed radical things happen but what ends up happening is there's always sort of this this progression downward digression where it just sort of devolves everything sort of unravels even though the system may still be going even though the doctrinal you know outposts might still be set up and even though they might have certain systems and structures that were set in place at the beginning they've just become this group that's not really known for anything but everything that they're against i think this is what jesus is writing to the ephesian church 
He says everything with regard to doctrinal and theological uh, comprehension and understanding and solidness, you guys have, and I commend you for that, but somewhere along the line, your love has just gone out the door. You guys have stopped loving each other. There's a lot of people that have studied this within churches. Um, I was listening to a message the other day by a guy named Tim Keller. Love Tim Keller. This is his analysis of this. He was talking about dead orthodoxy and how churches can sort of become dead in their orthodoxy, meaning everything they believe is solid. It's legit. You can't pull open your Bible and be like, ah, you're all jacked up right here because they're totally solid. Everything about their theology is correct. But there's something missing in the way in which they love each other. You walk in there and you just know it. They're like, something's not right here. Have you ever been to a church that, like that? You walk in, it's just like, it looks like it should be alive, but it's, it's not. I don't know what it is. People just aren't loving. It's just something's not right here. And that's what he's saying. He points out, basically, there's at least three ways in which churches become dead in their orthodoxy. And here's the way he defines it. These three ways. The first of which is they become legalistic. He identifies it as sort of like this legalistic brand. Meaning, what ends up happening is they, this is the group of people that... Um, hone in on certain key doctrinal ideas. They're very theologically sound. Um, they, they love to preach messages that are very, very theologically deep. And what ends up happening is that they love to be told that they're correct. Um, this group of people ends up becoming very dogmatic. They become very argumentative and pharisaical, legalistic. You know the reason why? It's because they're insecure. They're insecure. What ends up happening is at the end of the day, they feel as if their right relationship with God, their right relationship with God is based upon how theologically sound they are. Please don't misunderstand me. I think it's essential to be theologically sound. All right? I think it's essential. Don't think, oh, cool, I'm so glad Brian's like bagging on theology. I'm not. I'm a huge theology buff. I love theology. I study theology. I just read books on theology just because I like it. I think we are a very theologically driven church. But what I am trying to say is this, is that it is possible to become so theologically sound that you just don't have love. You just don't have love. These type of people like to argue. They like to join with other people that think just like them, that have the same type of convictions and doctrines just like them, and they end up looking down upon other people who don't think just like them. The way the media, today's world, caricatures them is the fundamentalist religious right. Okay? These people love to be told how good they are and how right they are and how accurate they are. And if you ever were to pull somebody like this aside and say, listen, I think you might be wrong in this, they fire back out of anger because you've challenged them at the very core of what they think is the most important thing that defines the church is their orthodoxy and their soundness. This is the legalistic brand. The second brand is more liturgical. I don't think it affects many of us here, but these are the group of people that for the most part maybe have grown up in a church or involved in the church, it's maybe very liturgical, meaning there's a lot of order, and you know, they got the, the organ at the particular time, they sit in certain types of pews or seating, and these types of churches has a, have a particular type of smell to them, you know? Uh, musty, I don't know. And, 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 and I think people like these types of churches because it brings a sense of nostalgia. Like, I feel really good 
sitting in this church, listening to this type of music, listening and, and feeling the type of uh, rhythm that's in this church. But the reality is, is you try to change it. You know, pastor comes in and like, what's up? We're going to have a new guy lead worship today, and he's playing the guitar. These people freak out because they're like, guitar, isn't that just like the lyre? And the lyre, isn't that like what Satan plays? Like, you know, people freak out. They just don't want to change. They just don't want to change. And what ends up happening is, again, it's an orthodoxy, maybe a soundness. We've got to be right, but it's dead. The last one he defines as this, is speculative. And these are people that like to be told they're good, think positive. You don't hear sin talked about here. You just hear of, you know, negativity. It's like the reason why you're having a tough day, because you're just negative. You've got to turn that around and be positive. Think positive. Look in the mirror and everything's good. You can do it. You can do it. And it's kind of like a pep talk. And it's sort of this feeling of we just want to be told that we're, we're okay, everything's okay in the world. I'm okay, you're okay, it's just all going to be okay. But all of these is, are, are facets that are on the verge of dead orthodoxy. The legalistic brand, the liturgical brand, the speculative brand. And the reality is that all of them can get so set in this particular standard away where love doesn't define them anymore. They're defined by our pet doctrines. They're defined by what we're against. They are defined as a group by the type of church building they have. They're defined based upon how positive they can be or the type of social activities that they're doing outside. But they're not defined by this overwhelming sense of love. And this is what Jesus is writing to. He's saying, listen, you guys, somewhere along the line, you've been defined by all sorts of other things, but love has somehow just missed you guys. And his whole point is that you need to come back and change. You guys, for us as a church, we've been going for 15 years, a little over 15 years. I want for us to be a church that is defined by love. Now, I want you to think about this. Because a lot of times a church in America today especially, is trying so hard to be defined by all sorts of other things. Right? I mean, it's like, for us, I mean, on Calvary Slope, I mean, we, we don't have that much. There's not that much to be all boastful and pride about when you're prideful about when you're meeting in a gymnasium that kids sweat and drop their, like, Capri Sun on the floor. All right? They're like Go-Gurts, like, squirting down the floor, right, beneath your toes. Like, there's not that much to be like, oh, this, we're at the coolest church. Right? I mean, our laser shows aren't that great. You know, our fog machines aren't, don't work that often. My point is this, is that there's not that much that really defines us in terms of sensationalism, right? Just, but the reality is this. For us as a church in this world, what the most important thing that can go forth to define the church, to speak loudly in terms of this is who we are, this is what God is like, is love. It's love. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called The Mark of the Christian. And his whole argument is, is the mark of the Christian is love. We love one another. The church can't be defined by its laser shows or by its preaching or by its pet doctrines. Do you know that everybody has their pet doctrines? Do you know that? If the church is just another little group that says, well, we believe this and this is our creed, and this is what we stand by. 
The Kiwanis Club has that. I mean, the Masons have their own little creeds and things which they're defined by. There's got to be more than just simply creeds and deeds. There has to be a sense that love that comes from the Father that impacts us and affects us and flows from us into a horizontal level that changes not only us, but changes the world around us. That's what transforms us. That's what transforms this culture. That's what demonstrates to the world that you know what? God can and God will change. That God did come down into this world. The Bible teaches, Paul writes, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. He doesn't say that God just hypothesized about love or wrote love into prose or poem or song. He doesn't just simply say that God sort of, you know, set forth this ambiguous definition of love, but he says God demonstrates love by sending a son. And the real question that we have to ask ourselves is, is, are we loving? Am I loving? Is this the type of church that we are? I'm going to give you an example, all right? I, I got an email a few weeks ago from a guy that used to go to church here a long time ago. He doesn't go to church here anymore. moved away. And he wrote this email and it was kind of long and I think it was very good it's very well written he basically just said this in a nutshell he says listen I, I used to come to this church and I haven't been here in a very long time and I came back and and for 10 minutes I stood inside in the back and nobody said hi to me and then I thought maybe I'll go outside and kind of stand outside I stand out in front of the bathrooms and for 10 minutes more nobody said hi to me and I went out to like the little tent I was talking to a friend of mine and for another like five to eight minutes nobody said hi to me and he says, you know, you know, Brian, because I respect you. I love this church. This is my church. I, I, you know, I, God radically met me here when I went to Cal Poly. He says, but, but it was hard for me coming back. It was weird for me to not be reached out to. And to be really honest with you, my first response was I wrote this long letter, and I was about ready to send it. And my grammar is pretty horrible. My spelling just stinks. So I asked my wife, I'm like, hey, can you read this? Just make sure my grammar's all, like, looking good and my spelling's all right. She, my wife read through it. She read through it. She was like, you can't send this. I'm like, why? She's all, even though everything you said is legit and right, it's just very unloving. You, you sound very defensive and angry. She says, you can't send this. I'm like, then you write it, you know? And I was like, ah. Oh. But honestly, afterwards, I just thought about it. I'm like, ah, oh, that was horrible. Now, I, I realize, you know, because it takes two people to, to reach out and connect. I mean, I know some people might come here and they're like, I love this church. The first day I was here, five people came out to me and said hi to me. Other people come here like, nobody says hi to me. Some people are like, I sat next to the same dude for six weeks in a row, and I've, I've gotten no further than, hi, my name is blank. You know, that's it. Because what I'm trying to say is this, is love has to go deeper than just simply things that we say and the things that we believe. It has to be an action has to be that we love each other. There's practical ways in which we demonstrate love. Forgiveness is one of them. And if you're holding a grudge against somebody, that's not showing love. It's not demonstrating the same type of love that God demonstrated to you. That's why Paul said, while you were still a sinner, Christ died. While you were still in sin, God sent his son. And he's like, you want a demonstration of love? That's demonstration of love right there. Christ on the cross dying for wicked, evil, oppressive types of people. Jesus died for them. And he's saying that when the gospel affects us and it moves through us, 
We become outward focused people is what I'm trying to say. I realize we tend to be independent by nature as well as by nurture, meaning we live in a country that has founded itself on independence. We even have our own holiday called Independence Day. We're all about being independent, right? We're all a bunch of indie rock stars that want to do our own thing and think that we're the best at it. But what I'm trying to say is that at the end of the day is that those are types of attitudes that I think Jesus is writing to and saying, you might be solid, you might have right theological convictions, you might see things correctly, but at the end of the day, you're just, you're just not loving. You're not loving each other. You're not going out of your way to show love to each other. You guys, I really, honestly, I'm just speaking, you know, pastor to you guys, I love you guys. I love this church. It's part of the reason why I got so defensive when I started to write that letter back. I love you guys. I will defend you guys. Even though maybe some of us don't deserve defending, but I still, I, we're like a family here. And I want to make sure that as a church, even though we are doctrinally solid in discerning in the things that we believe, what it trumps all of that is love. That's why Paul says, even though I speak with tongues of angels, might be like hyper-charismatic, even though I might be the dude prophesying on the street corner, even though I might be doing all sorts of things, even giving my body to be burned. Paul says, look, there's even a way to do that that's not loving. Paul says the most important thing is that we love each other. We love each other. I want us to be a church that's defined by the love that we have for one another. So my encouragement to us as a body is that we ask God, God, how does this look like? What does this look like? This isn't just about putting a smile on her face and shaking some person's hand next to us. This is about literally just living, going into each other's lives, asking sometimes those hard questions, inviting people to go out to dinner, to hang out, spend some time doing lunch. I realize, and I'm just going to say this one more time. I know it's kind of getting late, but that's cool. I guess finish this up. It's this. We have a church that has a massive uh, polarization of young people and sort of middle-aged and older people. And I hear it all the time. Old people come here, they're like, ah, there's just all these massive groups of kids. And I feel, I feel like out of place. Are there any other old people here? Answer is yes, there are older people. You just gotta look for them. But here's my point. Here's my point. Is this, this, this mentality oftentimes kind of breeds in it that, that goes something like this. They're just students. They come, take advantage of this town, they cause housing market to go up, and there's this resentment, I think, honestly, that some people have. And what I'm trying to say is that is, first of all, not loving. God has brought all sorts of people into this church. Do you know that almost every single missionary that is on the field today is a missionary today because they came to Calvary Slow, got saved at Calvary Slow, got grown up in their walk in Christ at Calvary Slow, were discipled by older people at Calvary Slow, and are now living the gospel somewhere around the world as a missionary from this fellowship. It has to start every single year. We can't just get into some sort of a rhythm and forget about it and be like, I loved people two years ago. No. We have to keep doing it. And that goes for some of your students. You like move away from home. You're like all indie now. You're like... You know what, I'm eating ramen all the time, and I don't care, I love it. 
No, you don't. You hate it. Just admit it. All right? You don't. You really, really, truly want a good meal. All right? Just admit it. All right? First step to growth in Christ is admission and confession of sin. All right? The reality is this. Is that if we could be a body that really just loved one another, here's what I see. Older people who should know better, who love Jesus, maybe been walking with Christ for longer, they could reach out. Rather than just viewing people as sort of nuisances or whatever, but they reach out and they love. That's my challenge to us as a church, that we would live like that. We're going to finish up and take communion together. And what I want for you to think about is this, as we go to taking communion, Jesus finishes this little letter by saying this. He says, yet this I have against you that you hate, the, or you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. In verse 17, he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant for him to eat of the tree of life that's in the paradise of God. His whole point is that I want you guys to shine forth brightly as a light in this dark world. For the Christians in Ephesus, it was a very dark world. And Jesus' whole point is that I want you to shine brightly. And the way you do that is you love one another. You serve one another. It's not about just trying to be doctrinally sound and about doing good social works and activities. It's about going back and remembering what love used to be like for one another, repenting of the fact that you're not there, and redoing those things over again. That's what Jesus says. So as we consider this, I want for us to be praying, asking God to show us as a church, to show us as individuals. Again, as the letter is written to individuals, I want you to feel the weight of that and say, how am I not being loving? How am I not demonstrating, showing love in this church, in this body? And I want you to consider that the way that we love comes to us. We didn't go to it. God sends his son to us into this world as a sacrifice for us. And as a result, if we're sitting around waiting, saying, well, when is love going to come to me? You're not thinking gospel. You're not thinking gospel. Gospel says, how can I go out? How can I live out? How can I emanate? Light emanates. Light goes forth. Gospel thinking says, I refuse to sit back and be a critic of everybody who does not come to me. Gospel says, I will go out. If I don't have strength, I'll confess my weakness and call out to God for strength. And I want to be like Christ, going out, emanating, shining forth brightly the love, the kindness, by demonstration of love in word and deed and action. It all comes from the Father, through the Son, through the cross. Jesus dies, rises again to us. We experience it on a vertical level, and yet we live it out on a horizontal level. That is a message that this world needs to hear. Not more doctrinal solidness, not more arguments from within the church and bickering and backbiting as to what we don't do right, but what the church needs to hear desperately is the love of God that came down and goes out through us and it has to start in Calvary Slough has to start here has to begin right now if you're here you're not a Christian and you don't know this love yet I encourage you just confess your sins call upon Jesus look to him he'll save you he'll wash you he'll cleanse you he'll restore fellowship with you 
and you'll be home. You'll be home. That's where God wants us to be, is home. Home is with our maker. And as God has made home in you, we're gifted with this opportunity to live it out horizontally. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We worship you now. We respond to you now by not only giving our tithes, our offerings, but we also respond by partaking in communion, by celebrating what you did, Jesus, for us on the cross. Some of us, Lord, here will respond by confessing our sins and asking you, Jesus, to forgive us and wash us. And some here will become Christians for the very first time here today, right now. For others here, Lord, I... I, to confess their sin and they're going to start being the church not just acting giving lip service but being by demonstration the church by receiving the love of God and by living the love of God externally outwardly we thank you Jesus for your great love for us we worship you and respond